Amen. I want you to go ahead and be seated. Uh, I want you to continue to keep your your heart open to what the Holy Spirit is saying and doing. And uh, again, encourage you to take um, to make use of the chat that is there. Um, it's interesting. I've listened to a lot of preachers for a lot of years, and uh, a lot of them used to say things like "touch your neighbor, touch your neighbor," and now they say "put it in the chat, put it in the chat." Um, because we just live in a time that's a little bit different now because all this online stuff. And so, but thank you, um, Christy and Madeline, for leading us in that time of worship. Um, I love that Psalm 23. Um, I did a study through Psalm 23 last year that reminded us that the valley of the green pastures and the valley of the shadow of death are the same place. They're the same place. Because he's with us in both places. And our cup doesn't overflow in one and be empty in one. It overflows. Period. Um, And so that's a great song, a great truth, a great reminder. Because I know that in our day right now, um, there's a lot of weariness. There's a lot of people that are like, I'm just tired. I'm tired of all of the, the conversation. I'm tired of all the noise. I'm tired of all the stress. I'm tired of all the uncertainty. I'm just, I'm weary. And, um, you know, I felt it too. There are days where I just am like, Lord, I'm just done. And, you know, we've all been guilty of saying it. Oh, just let me off this. Lord, just come back. Can I tell you that the rapture of the church should not just be a desire to escape the world? And if it is, then something's off in our theology. Okay? Um, Because we have to remember that we are more than conquerors right now in Christ Jesus. And we cannot allow the pressure that we feel on the outside to change what we have on the inside. I mean, Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews, in talking of Jesus, said, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. He didn't say you won't grow weary. It's impossible not to grow weary. We live in a world where all this pressure is on us all the time. Weariness is just an aspect of it. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Paul says, don't get weary in doing what is right, in doing what is good, because at the proper time you reap a harvest if you do not give up. And so weariness is a part of the ballgame, but what we do in that moment of weariness means everything. And sometimes it, you don't have the strength to do it yourself, so you call a friend and say, help me, get me back up, pray for me. You know, you don't give me advice, don't give me a scripture, just pray for me. Just say, Jesus, help them. Jesus, get them up. I mean, there's scriptures all, all over the place that we could give you in that moment, but what you really need is the word of God to come alive on the inside of you. You already know the scriptures. You just need the word to come alive on the inside of you. And there's this weariness that's coming on the body of Christ right now. We don't know what to do. We're just tired. We're just, and when we're weary, you know what we, we do? We get crabby. We get crabby. And the, the body of Christ right now, a lot of, it, a lot of us, we're just getting crabby. We're not speaking life. We're just flat out crabby, and it comes from a place of weariness. And so there might be something in that Psalm 23, there might even be something in that dream that speaks to that process that God is just reminding us, hey, I'm your peace, 
and I'm in you, and your cup's overflowing. Um, and so don't let your eyes get off of what the prize is. And so um, I'm going to guarantee you right now that I'm not going to land the plane at 11.15, but I'm going to land it close, as close to 11.15 as possible. I'll promise you that. Um, but we, we are in this series where we're learning to trust the story, and I can't say it enough. We need to learn to trust the story that God has been telling us from beginning to end. Last week, I started to unpack this idea of the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus, and I put a lot of resources on Slack this week um, about being buried in baptism from Romans chapter 6, about this kingdom theology. Um, can I just tell you that every time today you hear the words kingdom theology, you're not hearing the same thing. Okay, so you can't just take when someone says kingdom theology and assume that they're saying the same thing that you're thinking. Okay, because kingdom theology could mean a lot of stuff in our, our society right now. So you really got to drill down in on what's being taught when someone says kingdom theology. Um, but I do think there's this revival, if you will, of things that have been lost. We've preached a gospel, not a gospel of the kingdom. And I think there is a difference. There's a difference between the gospel of just individual salvation through the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. Um, that is included in the gospel of the kingdom, but it's not the whole part of the kingdom, if that makes sense. Jesus came teaching the gospel of the kingdom before he died on the cross. So there's a part of the kingdom that we need to understand and learn. And I think it's from beginning to end. And so we want to make sure that we're, we're walking in that, understanding that. Um, I put, again, so many resources on Slack. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't get to cover. Like today we're covering 1 Corinthians. There's no way I can cover every passage in 1 Corinthians um, and do it justice today. If you ever have questions about a certain passage and I don't cover your passage in the message, feel free to reach out to me and say, hey, what do you think on this? I don't have all the answers. I have some answers. I have some things. I even have things I disagree with locked in up here. Okay, because I think it means this, but I've heard other people teach that it means that. And I, I got both of them living right there. And uh, I don't know what to do with them yet. And so maybe you'll help me process that one. And so there are just some things, as Peter said, when Paul writes, there's just some things that dude writes that are hard to understand. So I guarantee you, if Peter, who walked with Jesus and lived at the time of Paul, found some of his writings hard to understand, you and I are also going to have a hard time understanding some of Paul's writings. And so we need to make sure that we work on that together. But today, we're going to look at as much of 1 Corinthians as we can. Um, the ripple effect is what I've called this. And the reason I've called it the ripple effect is for two reasons. One, um, we in the Western church were very Pauline in our theology in our practice, in what we do. And so what that means is most of our Christian doctrine is based on the writings of Paul. Most of it, not all of it, but it's heavy Paul emphasis. Um, you think of even how we talk about salvation. We use the Romans road. Well, where does the Romans road come from? Romans, Paul. A lot of what we have comes from Paul. And we have been taught to read the letters that Paul wrote in a linear, logical, Western way. Paul's making these points. Paul's, you know, using this argument. Paul said this, and then he said this, and that means this. Paul wasn't Western 
And he wasn't linear in his teaching or in his thinking. He was Eastern and he was more circular. If you want to think of how to, how to describe it, it's still hard for me to describe, but think of it as you drop a, a pebble in a, in a pond. What happens? There's ripples that go out. The Apostle Paul, when he teaches, is more circular in that way. Not circular in meaning it just, you know, doesn't go anywhere, it just goes in circles, but circular in the main meaning that it's coming back around. It's coming back around. So when we read Paul's letters, we assume he's moved on from a topic, and he hasn't actually moved on from a topic, he's just putting that topic into a new circle, and he's coming back to it. And we're going to see some of that when we go through the First Corinthians letter, but we're not going to see all of it. And as we've talked about in this series, I believe it's important for us to understand the Hebrew nature, the Jewish context of the Scripture, and even of Paul. It's very important. The early church fathers had divorced Christianity from Judaism. So when we put our Bible together, we didn't put it together in the order that the Hebrew Scriptures are. So the Scriptures that Jesus read when he was on the earth, the Old Testament that he had, we're not in the same order that our Old Testament Bible is. And for some of us, we think that's no big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal, but it, it puts things in a linear, logical, Western way. And sometimes we miss points that are being made in an Eastern circular way because we've disrupted the flow, if you understand what I'm saying. And so it's not wrong to look at the Bible logically. You just miss some things if you do that. And so we want to open our hearts and our minds to this full understanding. Even our New Testament is organized. I don't know if you know this, but the letters in our New Testament are organized from Romans to Revelation in order of length, except for Revelation, because we felt like that was the final say on the, the book or on the, the New Testament. And so if you look at the letters of Paul, Romans is first because it's the biggest, the largest, and then 1 Corinthians, which is close, and then 2 Corinthians, because we just want to put it close, and then it goes on through largest to smallest, not in order they were written, not in any type of other order, but just arranged logically. Not bad, but for some of you, as you read through the untold story, you're like, oh, that letter was written over here. Oh, that one was written first. Oh, that makes, and it's going to begin to start to make more sense to us so we can see the whole picture. That's what I hope is happening. Now, another part of this is we take Hebrew and Greek word studies. You, you ever, I mean, the Hebrew word means this. The Greek word means that. And that's very important. In fact, I, you get a Hebrew or Greek study Bible, look it up online. I have a program. I use it. That's good. It's just not complete. And I'm going to show you why using the topic of homosexuality. Not because I want to pick on it, but because it's just, it's in 1 Corinthians for one thing. And it, it helps us understand why that's not enough. Because what we've done is we've taken this word that is translated homosexuality in our Bibles and we're like, well, the Greek word is pretty vague in that passage. And so if you look at the Greek word and its meaning in the Greek culture at large and you do all of this and you massage it just right, Paul might actually not be saying that it's, it's bad to be in a homosexual relationship. It might all be okay because it's so vague in the Greek term. That's probably true. But if you put Paul in his Hebrew context, and you remember that 
Hebrew was spoken by many of the people of the day, even Jesus, and it was written in Greek. So imagine writing the words of Jesus in a language other than what Jesus spoke them. So it's important for us to get the Hebrew context because I promise you, if you put Paul in his Hebrew context and you put all of the scriptures in the Hebrew context, the meaning is crystal clear. Paul would not condone homosexual activity for any reason. He wouldn't. It just wouldn't be what Paul would do. Now, I don't know what that means for your theology or for your life or for living, but all I can tell you is you can massage Greek and Hebrew words to make them mean something, but if you've got the full story and you've got the Hebrew context of the Bible, I don't think you can misuse the Scripture some of the ways that we do. And so that's why we want to be careful. That's why I think knowing these background pieces are so important for us. And we're not going to drill down on homosexuality today. If you've got questions or you want to talk about that, I'm free. You can come to the table. We can talk. We can wrestle with it together. Uh, that's just not what I'm going to dig into because that's not the main point that Paul's making here in Corinthians. And I really only have time to talk about the main point that Paul's talking about. If you've read the untold story, you know that 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. There's a letter that's lost to us. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians. When Apollos returns, Paul hears some stuff. He writes them a letter. They write a letter back. Okay? Paul references that too. We do not have those copies. We do not know exactly what was said. We can make some inferences based on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but this is really 2 Corinthians. Clear as mud? Okay. So then, in a couple weeks, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians, which is actually 4 Corinthians, because there's another letter from Paul that's lost to us, and maybe another letter back to Paul. <laughs> yep. And so, we only have these two letters, and we just call them 1 and 2 Corinthians because they're the only ones we have. They're just not the only ones that were written. So we want to keep that in context. And what we want to understand is that when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he's writing to the church in Corinth. He's not writing to the city of Corinth. This is not a treaty that he wants them to take to the town square and tap up on the wall and say, people of Corinth, here is the word of the Lord to you. Mm -mm. This is a conversation between Paul who spent 18 months planting a church in Corinth He's heard some reports about what's going on in Corinth. They've written him a letter asking some questions. He's written the letter back to them. And as we look at Paul's circular argument, I wish I had time to go into it in great detail. We won't. But he continues to come back to certain points. He continues to repeat things throughout the letter because that's the argument that he's making. The other reason that I call this the ripple effect is because of the interconnection in the Bible, or in the body of Christ, in the church in Corinth. Andy Andrews wrote a book called The Butterfly Effect. Basically, the whole book is about if a butterfly flaps its wings in Indonesia, the wind it makes actually creates change all around the world. Um, you'd have to read it. It's, it's a, but his point is this. Everything you do matters. Every move you make, every action you take matters, not just to you or your family or your business or hometown. Everything you do matters to all of us forever. There's a ripple effect to our lives, and we'll see it in this letter, that as a, as a church, we don't fully understand this because in our Western worldview of church, it's an individualized thing. 
I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If I want to grow in my relationship with God, then I get alone with Jesus. I get alone in the scriptures. And I'm not saying those things are false. They're just not the Jewish context of the Bible. They're not what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. If you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, when Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm present with them. Not because he's not present with us individually, but because there's a communal aspect that's foundational in the scripture that is, as the Western church, we set aside I mean, it's just me and Jesus. It's just me coming to a church service, get what I need, go home. Me and my family, me. And there's no I in gospel. Unfortunately, there's no we in gospel either, but that would have been really cool. Um, But there's a communal aspect to the scripture that Paul is going to put here that we sometimes overlook and we make it all about just me and Jesus. I just need me and Jesus. And we think the way to grow spiritually is get more alone time with Jesus. Alone time with Jesus is very, 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 very important. Jesus got up early and he spent alone time with the Father. But do you notice that when Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds and be alone, it was with 12 other people? Huh. And they weren't family. There's this communal aspect to the scripture, this ripple effect that we're missing in the American individualized church. Paul's going to point it out in Corinth. And in fact, I think Corinth and America are super similar. So Paul's letter to the Corinthians, I think, is a great letter for us in the American church. Corinth was a major port city. It was a melting pot. It was super diverse. I mean, it had diversity in culture. It had diversity in ethnic, ethnically. Ethnically, they were diverse. Religiously, they were very diverse. All kinds of idolatry and religion taking place. Vocationally, I mean, there were more vocations in the city of Corinth than almost any other. I mean, certain cities had like one major thing. That, that was their major vocation. Corinth was just diverse in every way. And they prided themselves in their diversity. The Corinthian church fell into this same trap. The main worship of the overall city of Corinth was the worship of Aphrodite. And if you know anything about the study of Aphrodite, there's a lot of it idolatry and sexual immorality that's going to take place there. That's going to be important. You take Las Vegas and you multiply it by 10, you're getting close. See, there's this mindset today that our world started good and then sin entered the world and it progressively got worse. And now we're at the bottom. But can I tell you, if you study these ancient pagan practices, there are things taking place that will make you blush. Some of them will make you sick in your stomach. The the sexuality that is attached to some of this stuff. It's just mind-boggling. So when people are like, oh, our culture today is so sexualized, I'm like, "Mm, I'll send you some podcasts that you'll, don't listen with your kids in the room. Because they'll tell you about some of the idolic practices that are taking place exactly where Jesus took his disciples. When he took them to Caesarea and he says to Peter, hey, who do people say that I am? That's in one of the most pagan places in the entire world at the time. There were actually people having sex with animals as part of the practice there. And the disciples are probably super nervous to even be there. 
But if you study what's going on when Jesus asked them that question and what rock he's actually building his church on, that's some pretty cool stuff that he's making that point of. But we got to keep going. So Paul is addressing the beginning of his letter. He's addressing some things he's heard. The middle of the letter, right around chapter 7, he's going to address questions that he's received from them. And then in chapter 16, he's going to wrap it all up. And he wraps it up by this collection to the poor and all the, the things that his personal remarks and his closing. Do you remember the Jerusalem Council from Acts chapter 15? The Jerusalem Council, the three things, remember, they talked about idolatry, sexual immorality, and blood. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and blood. We basically said idolatry, sexual immorality, and sanctity of life. That's the three things that they, they put on the Gentile believers at Jerusalem Council. Oh, and by the way, take care of the poor. So you're going to hear Paul in this letter talking about idolatry, sexual immorality, and blood. Oh, and don't forget the poor. That's what he's going to keep bringing back to the Corinthian church here. So we come to the beginning of this letter, and the overarching message that Paul is making to this church is, you're one body. You're one body. Keep in mind, the Corinthian church is not like us. They don't gather together on Sunday in one big room and have a church service. Okay? They meet in homes, just like most of the other churches do. Now, they will gather in the synagogue to study the Torah and the prophets and the writings, just like the Jews. But when they gather for Christian worship, it's not necessarily in a large gathering like this on a weekly basis. Okay? It's in small groups in homes. But Paul is speaking to the church in Corinth. Wherever you meet, whatever home you meet in, I'm writing to all of you. So this is his letter to them. And he starts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Who's he writing to? Brothers and sisters. Not people of Corinth. Brothers and sisters. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Oh, hallelujah. This is what we work towards. Some of us maybe look at this and are like, everyone has to agree with me because we have to be perfectly united. Paul isn't saying that you're even ever going to get to the place where you actually agree on everything. But you have to come to a place where you don't ever stop working towards this goal. Some people are like, oh, there's so much, there's so much disunity in our church because we don't agree on things. No, disunity is out of relationship with each other. It's not that we don't agree on topics. It's that we're not in relationship with one another. That's disunity. Because are we, we will never come to a place where we all agree on every topic. Never going to happen. I don't even know if it's supposed to happen. I think God designed us in such a way that we get a better picture of who God is when we hang around with people not like us, who think differently than us. Because we see aspects of God's nature that are in them as they read the scripture, as they understand the scripture. But we all like to be in our own little echo chambers and just hear our favorite teacher, much like the Corinthians. And Paul says this, some of you are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and then the real spirituals, I follow Christ. <laughs> Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you can say that you were baptized in my name. I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now, you could read that and think, well, 
aren't we supposed to baptize? That's not what he's saying, but we don't have time to go into that. Paul is saying we like to divide ourselves up under certain personalities. Well, I listen to this preacher. I listen to that pastor. I listen to this podcast. I watch this version. And we like to divide ourselves by our traditions. Well, I grew up in this tradition. I grew up in that tradition. I like this tradition. I like this tradition. I like that thing. Uh, politics, we like to divide ourselves. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. I think this. I think that. Theology, well, I think Paul means this. I think Paul means that. I'd rather listen to Peter. I'd rather listen to Paul. Paul is saying, stop it. It's not that we shouldn't have discussions. It's not that we shouldn't wrestle through issues. Absolutely, that's a very Jewish thing to do. But stop dividing yourselves over it. Stop letting it get into your heart where you no longer, I I can't even go to church with those people anymore. When I see them, I I don't know what to say because you've let it get in your heart. Paul says, don't do that. We've got to disagree on issues. We've got to wrestle with these things. Otherwise, we'll never accomplish anything. But don't let it get in your hearts. Don't divide yourselves over it. And lest you think he only says it in chapter 1, let's look at chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Listen! People that don't live by the Spirit, you're worldly. You're infants in Christ. What are those? how How does Paul define this? Look at this. You're still worldly because... There is jealousy and quarreling among you. Notice he doesn't point to any real bad sins that says you're you're worldly and you're not following the Spirit because the Spirit is a spirit of peace. It doesn't mean he's a spirit of single-mindedness. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. But if you can't be joined at the heart and disagree, you've got a problem. And we look at that and think, how is that even possible? Only by the Spirit. That's why the world can't do this. That's why the world can't sit at the table with someone they disagree with and have a conversation respectfully. That's why we can't. Because we don't live by the Spirit. The problem isn't that I'm seeing it in the world. The problem isn't that I'm seeing it in in politics and in Washington, D.C. The problem is I'm seeing it in the church. Paul is not, he's not like the the Corinth. Oh, it's so bad in Corinth there. He's like, guys, what is this? And then at the end of this chapter, he says, you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are the temple. Yes, we like to take these temple passages and say, you shouldn't smoke and you shouldn't drink and you should, you should take care of your body because your body is a temple. And I'm not saying Paul's not saying that, but the overarching message of Paul's temple passages are plural. You're one body, one body. You're the temple of God. And we love to point to the passages in the Old Testament that say homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. But what we don't like to point to is that Proverbs also says one who sows discord among brothers is also an abomination to the Lord. Why? Because they're the, the temple. Don't destroy your brother. This doesn't have any place. And then he goes to chapter 6, and he's talking about these disputes. Why are you going before ungodly for judgment? You people are supposed, you're the Lord's people. You're going to judge the world. And yet you're not competent to judge these trivial cases. You're going to judge the angels. How much more the things in this life? So disputes settle these matters. 
Why are you doing this before the court? And I want you to look at this at the end of this passage. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. What the church is doing in front of unbelievers profanes the name of God. That's what Paul is saying. Because you're going to court and fighting about something that you should be handling together behind closed doors. You find a way to do this. They're doing it in the public arena. And Paul says, you're, you're profaning. In fact, look what he goes on to say right after it. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. I don't know how you want to massage that. Look at what he asks. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? <laughs> wow. Those are some pretty hard words right there. And that flies in the face of everything as human beings. I'm not going to be wrong. That person wronged me. I deserve this. I deserve, to be, I deserve to be treated fairly. I deserve this. I deserve. Ain't nobody deserves anything. None of us have deserved anything. And if we don't start putting in perspective what matters and what doesn't, how do I put it into perspective? Here's how I'd, I'd say it. Imagine you're in eternity right now. Boom. Jesus face to face in front of you. How many minutes, maybe how many seconds, is that thing you're fighting for going to matter? Job? How long is that job that you've been fighting for, that you were passed over for? That person that, that wrote that thing about you, that slanderous act, how long is it going to matter when you're eyeball to eyeball with the Messiah? That helps put it into perspective. It doesn't, it doesn't make the weariness go away. It doesn't make the pain go away. But I can't act by my pain. I can't act by what I feel. I have to act by what is true. And Paul is saying to the church over and over and over and over throughout this letter, you're, there's division among you. You're worldly. Their worldliness is mainly this. Does he, does he address other things? Absolutely. I don't have time to go into everything he addresses, but this Corinthian plague, I would say to America, beware. Not America out there. American church. We're allowing ourselves to be divided by preferential things, by theological issues that aren't, aren't eternal matters. By political differences, by whether someone cheated us or took advantage of us or slandered us. We have weaponized the Bible to appease ourselves and our group and whoever we want to be right. And we, hey, we don't answer to anybody. The Corinthians didn't answer to anybody either. It's found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He, right in the middle of this passage, says, some of you have become so arrogant as if I wasn't coming to you. The Corinthians have gotten to the place where the, even the teachings of the apostles, we don't need that. We don't need the teachings of the apostles. We are a law unto ourselves. Arrogance, pride. This is what Paul is pulling out of the Corinthian church and saying, 
And he loves them. You got to hear these things. He's not, oh, I hate you. Ah. He's like, guys, this is not who you are. This is not what I told you when I was with you. What is going on? Because they're all pointing to other things. We're more spiritual because we operate in the gifts. We're more spiritual because we believe this. We're more spiritual because I, I'm this person. I'm that person. I'm of this vocation. I'm of that vocation. I eat meat. I don't eat. Because of, uh, uh. Paul's like, none of you are spiritual. You're all worldly. Stop. And this is something I think the American church needs to hear, all of us. And these divisions are seen in the sexual immorality. In, for, in chapter 5, I don't have time to go into great detail on this. Uh, if you want to talk about it, I'd love to sit down and talk about it with you. But he talks about this sexual immorality that they're not dealing with in the church. You know, we don't like to deal with stuff in the church. We, we, we don't, well, we don't want to offend anyone. It's because we don't know how to do it. Because one, we're not connected in our hearts. So we're going around trying to correct everyone's behavior, but we're not correct, connected in our hearts. So if you go to around trying to connect anyone's behavior and you're not connected in their heart, it's pretty much going to fail. I'm just going to tell you. It's going to fail. And we try to look at this and we're like, okay, I got to go first to them and then I got to go, what is, what's my next step? And then I got to get a couple other people and then I got to go to the church. And if we're not connected in our hearts, I don't care what scripture passage you pull out. It's not going to end well. And we don't want to be connected in our hearts because it's all about me. I don't really have time to be connected in my heart with you because I just, I just want to be here for a couple hours on Sunday and then I want to go on my way. And we wonder why we can't live this out. And the, not only were they not dealing with it, but they were proud of the diversity. You're, we're proud of this. And he's like, this should not be. Look at the end of that verse. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. We're all connected. The body is connected. Your, your actions and behaviors affect the body more than, than we know. My actions affect you more than I know. It matters. That's what Paul's reminding of them. And he's like this. I wrote to you before not to associate with sexual immoral people, not meaning the people of the world, and see, hear me. In the church, we're so busy trying to get the people in the world to behave themselves, but we can't even get the people who have the Spirit of God in them to stop doing this stuff. And we wonder why it's not working. When did Jesus say the world would know that I came from the Father? When you are one. When you're united in heart. When you can disagree with each other and yet be at the table laughing together. The world doesn't know what to do with that. When they see the church fighting, they know what to do with that. They do that all the time. But when they see a church disagreeing on something and yet maintaining a heart connection in love, they're like, that's, that's, that, that's not possible. Ah, that takes the Spirit of God. And I know at the end of this passage, you, you really need to read this passage because he says you got to expel the wicked brother, you got to put him out of the church. But please make sure that you understand he's being put out of the body for the sake of repentance in order to bring him back. And in fact, Paul's second letter or fourth letter 
the guy is brought back. That's the point. The point isn't to put people out. The point is to bring people to repentance. And how do we do that? Because here's what happens in our church today. Oh, well, that type of behavior is just not acceptable here. We don't want people to think we associate with that, so you have to leave our church now. And all they do is just go to another church down the street that says, oh, yeah, we believe that's okay. You just come to worship here. How does that lead anyone to repentance? So in our day with a different church on every corner, maybe without one authority over all of the house churches, maybe we got to deal with this a little differently. Maybe it's not put people out of the church. Maybe it's bring them closer so we can wrestle with this. Now, if they leave the church, that's on them. But we're so quick to put people out of the church because the Bible says you got to put them out of the church, does it? No, it says bring them to repentance. And how do we do that in our culture? I don't know. I'd love people to wrestle with me on that one because I'd love to bring people to repentance without kicking them to the curb. I need to be brought to repentance without being kicked to the curb. Then he goes into the, the situation of marriage and how one person's, and he uses this phrase, this is not a weaponized statement that the wife's body is not her own and the husband's body is not his own and they should come together and blah, blah, blah. What's happening here is either the husband or the wife is like, um, I have made a vow to the Lord to be like set apart for him so for the next year we cannot be together. And Paul's like, no, 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 you're not your own. So if you feel like you need to make that type of vow to the Lord, you got to get your spouse to be with you in agreement on that. Okay, because you don't get to make your own choices. Now, here's the interesting thing. Husband, wife, okay? So I don't get to say, oh, no, your body is mine. That's not, that's not how that works. It's meaning this body is hers, so I can't withhold for her. It doesn't tell me what I can tell her to do. It tells me what I need to do. And too many of us like to twist the scripture so we can tell other people what to do instead of understanding the scripture really has to speak to me about what I'm supposed to do. Because any type of trying to control someone else is all about manipulation. Now I can tell you what the Bible says. I just can't make you do it. And if I try... I'm going to get into trouble. And then Paul wrestles with these guild feasts. Um, we don't understand what guild feasts are, but guild feasts are basically like a fraternity and a labor union put together. And every one of these vocations have a God that they worship. So when you get together for your guild feast party, you know, there's sexual immorality, there's, there's meat, and it's not like you're going to an office party. Okay, it, this is not a great example. Office party, there's going to be alcohol, and there's going to be sexual innuendo. So I probably shouldn't go to that. That's not what it is. They're actually sacrificing the meat to false gods, and then you're eating it to partake in the worship of the god. Okay, in the temple, this was done too. When you brought a sacrifice to the temple as a Jew, sometimes you ate a part of the sacrifice as a part of the sacrifice to God. So these guild feasts were literally, by eating the meat, you were actually participating in the table of demons. And that's why Paul's like, uh, you gotta draw the line there. Okay, you can't participate. But if you're in one of these guilds and you wanna you know, rise to the top, I mean, I gotta go to the guild feast. Now, there's another thing at play here. The meat market. 
What if I buy leftover meat from the guild feast to eat in my home? Or an unbeliever invites me over to his house and they serve me meat and I don't know where the meat came from. Paul's like, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> That's literally what he says. He's like, if you hear that it's been sacrificed to a demon or a false god, then you can't eat it. But if you don't know, eat it. Eat it. It's not about the meat. You're not supposed to disassociate from unbelievers, is what Paul is saying. But they're causing all of this division. Look at what he says. Be careful that your exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I wonder how many American Christians we could get to sign that petition. My guess is not many. Don't tell me I can't eat meat. We invite people over to our house and we just try to convince them to eat meat even though they don't eat meat. And yeah, I'm not talking about eating meat. I'm talking about whatever your issue is. If only I could just get them to sign off on my issue. We just try to convince everybody. And none of us wants to lay down our rights. And yet Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I have rights as an apostle. And look what he does with his rights. I'm not a slave to anyone. But guess what? I've made myself a slave to everyone. Why? Because follow me as I follow Christ. The Son of God laid aside all his rights and his privileges, and he knelt before his disciples. Paul says it in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, I wish I could kneel down, but y'all will lose me. He knelt down at their feet, he humbled himself. And yet, so much arrogance and pride in the Corinthian church. We're not going to wash anybody's feet. We're not going to do... Do you know that the disciples were of all of different worldviews? Not all different, but they were different worldviews. So some were zealots. Some were Pharisees. Some were of that mindset. So when they argue about who's the greatest, do you know what they're really arguing about? Whose worldview's right? Whose worldview's right? And they're sitting around this table having that same argument. And Jesus is about to go to the cross. And ain't one of them going to bow their knee and wash each other's feet. And Jesus models for them, this is what you need to do for each other. And we take communion. Paul says, if you come together for communion and there's all kinds of division going on. Remember, he said your meetings do more harm than good. And we come to communion. And what do we make communion about? It's just me and Jesus. Okay, lock yourself alone with the Lord. Okay, think about all the ways that you've sinned and you're unworthy. Okay, and think about how much he paid for you and be really sorry for your sins. Let's bring the lights down, soft music up. Okay, ready? We want you to experience the fullness of... And I know I should, maybe I shouldn't mock it, but this is not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying you're not discerning the body, plural, of Christ. So... Mark Turnage, one of my favorite teachers, this week I listened to a message by him and he says that during communion, we ought to bring the lights up and I ought to turn to my neighbor and say, how are you doing on groceries this month? I heard you lost your job. Are you going to pay your bills this month? Is it, is it close? How much do you need? Okay, I can't give you that much, but here's what I can give you. And I pull out my checkbook. That's discerning the body of Christ. Not, 
Bring the lights down. Think about Jesus. Hey, you got six kids. Winter's coming. Do you got enough coats? Got enough boots? Let's meet at Walmart this week. Let me take care of that. That's what Paul's saying. When you come to the table of the Lord, you come as a body. Don't neglect the other members of the body. And we love to trumpet morality issues. We're just not so good on this love issue. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they're taking the gifts, of the manifestations of the Spirit, and they're using it for division. I'm more spiritual than you because I operate in these gifts, and that gift, and this gift. And, then, and Paul's like, you're just missing it again. And in the middle of this, he gives us 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And we relegate that to weddings when Paul is like, that's the whole point that I've been making in this entire letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no, who can live like this? Those led by the Spirit. And why does this matter? Because all of these other things are temporary. Eating meat, temporary. Your, your vocation, temporary. Your teacher, temporary. Because knowledge is in part right now, but one day knowledge is going to be face to face. But what lasts forever? Love. Love. It's a manifesto, if you will, on Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor. And two key verses that Paul gives us in this, in this book. I have the right to do anything. Everything's not beneficial. I have the right to do anything. I won't be mastered by anything. I have the right to do anything. Not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything. Not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Paul is making a circular argument throughout this entire letter. And he, he's dealing with other issues, yes, and yet he's bringing every issue back around to our interconnectedness as a body and how we're treating each other. I want to close three verses of Scripture from other writings of Paul. They're short, don't worry. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves one another has fulfilled the law. Whoever loves Others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And people are like, well, pastor, we got to speak the truth in love. But speaking the truth in love does not mean how I say something. It means the culture I've created to say it in. And if I, if I haven't loved my neighbor, I have no platform to speak truth in love. It doesn't matter how I say it in the moment. I haven't created the platform to love. That's why Jesus laid down his life for us. Romans chapter 15, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up 
For even Christ did not please himself. We love, oh, we love the stuff Paul says about homosexuality. We love the stuff Paul says about sexual immorality. We love the stuff that Paul says that helps us understand that abortion is sin. But these verses, well, you know, Paul didn't really mean that. Yeah, he did. Brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. The entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. When Paul writes about sowing to the flesh, and if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap death. He starts the list with sexual immorality, impurity, drunkenness, and idolatry. Sexual immorality, impurity, drunkenness, idolatry. But he ends the list with these words. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. If we use those things we're sowing to the flesh trying to reap a spiritual harvest and wondering why it won't happen. And he says, sow to the Spirit, love, love, joy, peace, patience. God, give us patience. Church, people don't have to change their mind today. They don't have to fix all their issues today. Patience. Kindness. If you cannot be kind to the unkind and the evil, you have yet to be impacted by the Spirit of God. Jesus himself said, anyone can be kind to those that are kind. The truth that you have allowed my word to penetrate your heart is how you treat your enemies. How you treat the unkind. And this is what Paul weaves throughout this entire letter. And this is hard. And I know that so many of you today are already so weary. You're weary with the coronavirus. You're weary with all the pressures. You're weary with all the decisions. You're weary with the financial burdens. You're weary with all of the politics and all of the things that you're supposed to side with or not side with. And now, now this. All you need to do is go to your Savior today and say, I want to embrace your way. Show me how. Show me how. And yeah, you need to spend a little alone time with him, but you need to, to find some people outside of you to start doing life with. You need to find some people that are less mature than you, that you can bring along patiently. You need to find people that are, are your friends, that are equals with you, to wrestle with. Not everybody who thinks the same as you. And you don't wrestle publicly on Facebook. You wrestle behind closed doors. Help me understand. What am I not seeing? Why are you seeing it that way? If you're not asking questions, you're not learning anything. This is what we need to do. 
we need to join together in the heart. And you don't have to see things every way that I see them. We just have to stay connected in the heart. And that happens behind closed doors. And then it happens in front of other people. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you will reap destruction. But if by the Spirit you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. So do not get weary in doing what is right because you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Don't just avoid sowing to the flesh. Keep sowing to the Spirit. Keep sowing to the Spirit. And so, Father, give us grace as Restoration Church. God, thank you for calling us out. Thank you for calling us to be different. Thank you for calling us to, to hear you, to respond to you, to, to understand the basics, the truths of your word, the things that we need to let go deep in our hearts. God, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be true to who you are from beginning to end. God, we don't want to sow to the flesh. We want to sow to the spirit. We want to speak the truth in love. We want to sow in love and in joy and in peace, in patience, in kindness. God, we want love to be on display at Restoration Church. We don't want to be afraid, God, to wrestle with each other, to deal with the issues. We don't want to be proud of diversity that we ought to be mourning over. God, we want to know the truths of your word. And we want to live them out in front of this world. God, we want to bring people to the starting line. We want to bring people to the finish line. We want to help those that have fallen. We want to be about restoration. For those that have fallen and been kicked to the curb. God, maybe they were even kicked to the curb by us. We want to repent. We want to fulfill the law to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, to love our neighbor who is just like us. We want to be as gracious and merciful to them as you have been with us. Show us how to do this. Holy Spirit, do a deep work in the heart of Restoration Church, wherever we are right now, in this room, where we're watching online, deep work in our hearts. Transform us. Don't let us be the same. Make us different. Make us imitators of you. God, give us strength for this. I pray your grace over this body today. God, we can't do this without you. We need your grace. We need your mercy because we're going to make mistakes. We're going to do this wrong. We're going to need your mercy and your grace. God, give it freely today. You promised you would. You promised if we asked, you would give us grace and mercy in abundance. Do it today for this body.
give them peace. God, where there's anxiety, bring peace. Holy Spirit, breathe peace in every home today. Breathe peace. Thank you for your work. Thank you for what you're doing. Give us eyes to see it. Give us courage to partner with you in it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, thanks for being here. Thanks for staying along. I know I went long, but I felt like this was a word I just had to get out. Love you guys. Our hosts are going to come and